0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm Megan Gilmore. I am really excited to be with you today. Happy February. Happy belated Valentine's Day. If you are listening to this when it drops, just a note, everything's on sale today. In honor of Valentine's Day, we are bringing you a married couple. I'm really excited for you to get to meet Clovis and Sharon Grant They are the founders of Sabona Centric Circle of Support, which is a support group that helps uh, black families who are raising or living with somebody with a disability. I always love getting to talk to Clovis and Sharon about their journey and what they're learning. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Sharon and Clovis, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having us, Megan.
2: Yeah, indeed. Indeed. We're glad to be here.
1: Now, you, you two probably don't know this, but when the manager of AMI Audio and I first started talking about this podcast back in 2021, and I was thinking about who I would want as guests, your names were at the very top of that list or very close to the top. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you. You're welcome. So uh, we first met in December 2020 when the two of you were starting a support group for Black Parents of disabled children. And Sharon, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about the story behind that.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. So basically, uh, Clovis and I have a son who is 26 years old and is on the autism spectrum. He was diagnosed at about the age of four. So year 2000, there wasn't much that was told to us. Once we got the diagnosis, it was basically we were on our own to figure it out. I knew I needed support, family and friends and faith family are great. But they just didn't understand autism, and they didn't understand the journey that we were on. And so I started to attend um, or search out some parent support groups. And uh, the one that I found, um, it was great information wise, it was great to be in a space with other moms, pretty much moms who were on a similar path. But I did notice over time that although I was in the group, I still felt a little bit lonely and isolated in that there Mm -hmm. were issues that spoke to me as a black mom raising a black son. In Canada, that weren't spoken to at the meetings. Issues of concern for me with regards to deficit thinking in the school system and how he would be perceived, and really trying to fight for him to get into the right programs. And when I, you know, tried to bring those issues up at the meetings, I didn't feel like the person hosting the meeting or running the meeting understood where I was coming from, understood the nuances and and the deeper concerns, the cultural concerns that I had as a parent. But I continued to attend the meetings because, again, the information was so important and so helpful. So fast forward now, the years go on, I go to meetings, I stop going to meetings, he becomes a teenager, I start going back to those meetings. And again, I'm sitting in a room with other parents, and I'm not seeing a lot of racialized faces, I might see another black mom, I may see another East or South Asian parent, but I'm really not seeing the black parents, I became an educator a few years later. And so now I'm in the education system, and I'm seeing the children in my son's class, And I'm seeing the children in my in the schools that I'm working in, I'm seeing all these children with different challenges and exceptionalities. Yet when I'm going to meetings, when I'm going to programs, I'm going to information sessions, I'm like, okay, where are the other black parents? And do they know this information? Are they getting access to these resources? And that's, I guess, when the thought of having a black support group was birthed in my mind is we need something for our community, we need something that speaks to our specific experience. And uh, so that's really where the idea came in and then Kovas and I started to speak and you know we promised ourselves that in 2020 we would start something small. Uh, It didn't remain small but that's really how it was birthed and that's when we made the decision that 2020 was going to be our year. Not knowing the year it was going to be with regards to the pandemic and with regards to kind of the racial awakening that began as a result of the unfortunate death of uh, George Floyd across the border.
1: And how like how did you see like the pandemic and then everything that happened surrounding the death of George Floyd how did you see that influence what happened in the group
2: well, the, the idea is, Sharon shared, started before that. And and we said, e- enough is enough. We could talk about doing this group, but had committed in 2020 to doing it. 2020 sounded really like it'd be a special year, <laughs> yeah, so right. why not? So our, our plan actually was that we were just going to do something small, as Sharon shared, and, and just invite a, a few families that we knew of into our living room and just start talking and seeing where it would lead. And then the pandemic hit, and then we thought, do we hold off? or not and then we thought hey you can do this virtually and and so that was the idea and then with the George Floyd situation it made the need and and the focus on race even more poignant for us and so that may have contributed and helped people our families be much more bold in looking for these kinds of services and supports because there was uh, I I would say greater acceptance in the community that we need to be much more attuned or in tune with the needs uh, racialized families, particularly Black families.
1: You both mentioned that you thought this would start small. It didn't. You had interest from across the province, some international interest from the very beginning. So where is the group now? What's the organization's current iteration? You
0: know, we started off meeting once a month, and within a few months, many of our families said this is not enough. So we meet twice a month. You know, we take a break throughout the summer. So now we're over 200 people on our email list. Uh, and this includes mostly families, caregivers, but some people who work in the field, so educators, early childhood educators, social workers, and so on. Again, across Canadian borders, across provinces, and so on. So we really reach out to the families to find out, what do you need? What's on your heart? What are the gaps in your learning and understanding? What are the tools that you need to better advocate for your loved one?
1: And Close, there's been a name change too for the group. I was just wondering if you can talk about what the meaning is behind the name and why you chose it?
2: We started initially with the Black Parent Support Group because it was very intuitive and that's what we wanted it to be about. But then we thought as as the group went on, we thought we wanted to do something that would be much broader because with the need that we saw from our families and some of the things that we were hearing really from the beginning um, in terms of us asking, what is it that you would want to see? We realized that just having a support group was quite limited. Limiting, but that the the families wanted other things, and so we thought we need to keep the the focus on the group, but we wanted a much broader term. And then the struggle about okay, so what is that name? And uh, Sharon was very committed to making sure that it had African roots. And so maybe Sharon, you you could share about how the name came about, because I was, uh, 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 let's just say, (laughs) slow to accepting the name, but then it grew on me. Go ahead.
0: We're always about hearing from our community, their ideas. And so we put it out to our parent and caregiver members in an email response from a parent. This actually had nothing necessary to do with the call out for suggested names, but in an email that a parent sent of gratitude, just thanking us for starting the group and sharing just how much of a need and how much of a breath of fresh air the group is to her her on this journey and raising her child. And in her signature line, she wrote the term "Salbona." I see you. So I went online and I looked up the term. It's a Zulu term. It's a South African term. But it's a greeting. It's used as a greeting, like, you know, to say hello. But really, it's not just hello. It's I see you. I see you. I value you. I see all your worth. And one thing that many of our families have shared, and I would even share personally, is we often sometimes feel as though our children are are not seen in society. That our children, Mm -hmm. that our loved ones, our siblings, our children, our uncles, our aunties who are living with different challenges are not seen they're not valued, their worth is not seen outside of our eyes. And we wanted our community to know that if no one else sees you, we see you and we value you. Mm -hmm. So that's where we came up with the name Salbona, Afrocentric Circle of Support.
1: And uh, Sharon, one of the things that you mentioned that kind of drove your desire to even start to think about making a support group for families was this feeling that as a black woman, people in support groups didn't understand your specific racialized and cultural experience. So I just want to give you both the opportunity to talk about that. So first of all, how would you, from your experience, how would you say disability is often treated in African or other Black communities?
2: Uh, well, I, I can share with you my thoughts. It is viewed often as a sickness. I, I know just even my dad, when when, when he, he heard about it, uh, about my son's diagnosis, he had uh, his church pray for my son and almost p- trying to pray that it went away. So there is this sense that it's, I don't know the right word right now, but it's a curse? It, it's a, a sickness curse. that, thank you. It's like a curse. And so it's almost like a, a, a hopeless diagnosis that you, your your life is over. And, you know, so so there is that kind of thinking that it you, you can't accomplish anything because you have a disability. And so that was part of it. Another part of it, uh, especially in our case with having a child who didn't physically look like they had a disability. So now there came the, the issue of, well, he doesn't look disabled, so it must be bad. Parenting, and so we we were sort of stuck in between the two because he either needs to be healed. Or as parents, we need to be healed. We need to do a better job of caring for our son. So it, it, there was this this lack of understanding that just because you have a diagnosis of whatever, um, in our case, it's autism, it doesn't mean your life is over. But the community often viewed it in a very negative way. And that's part of uh, the, the learning just even our own family needed and even our, our mm-hmm. church community. And, and uh, the church community has come a long way in understanding how to accept a member member. member who has a disability, especially, I I think if he was in a wheelchair, uh, there was, I guess, the stereotypical that's of somebody with a disability. But somebody with a hidden disability, whether it be ADHD, autism, where you can't physically look at them and say, there's an issue here, it becomes a, a greater challenge. And so it then is a blame on the family that we're not doing a good enough job, and then there's also the the other issue of well, it might just go away. Mm. There isn't a lot of hope overall.
1: And you mentioned how people were almost expecting like a cure or, or expecting yep. it to go away. So, do you feel like people were disappointed when, surprise, like autism doesn't just go away? was that difficult for people to kind of wrap their minds around
2: very much our personal journey has been through our church and family our friends as well as our own families and it has taken years for people to realize that there is hope one it's not going away but number two it's not fatal uh, if I can use that word in an extreme way your life my son his behaviors can change that he can learn he can grow and 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 so seeing him over the years learn how to play hockey learn how to play baseball learn how to articulate himself reduce some of the behaviors some of those things early on didn't seem possible and 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 I think there was a lot of sympathy Mm. You know, there was blaming the parents, but then there was also the, oh, I feel sorry for you, Clovis and Sharon. My goodness, God has given you, oh, I I don't know how I would do. Like, you guys are awesome. And it's like, okay, okay, enough is enough. We're not that perfect. Mm. We've been given a set of cards and we're going to play them. We're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. We don't want you to feel sorry for us. And we certainly don't want you to blame us. So there was this back and forth between blaming and then feeling sorry for us because it felt like this is a hopeless hand that we were given. So it has taken time for people to see growth, learning, and I would go as far as saying greater acceptance now for him In church now, there are certain people he'll go up to and hug, and they feel so, wow, he has come so far, because they saw him when he was seven, and, you know, just hitting, and, you know, it was just very difficult. And now where he's calmer, but he still has his idiosyncrasies, but they've seen the change. But it has taken time for people to get there and And to get there. I
0: think if I could, you know, just add to that, I mean, Clovis articulated it well. I think, you know, one of many beautiful things that have come out of this is, is a lot of our, our family and our friends and our faith family, they start to educate themselves. I think, unfortunately, in probably many cultures, I'm sure not just the Black culture, but in many cultures, unfortunately, there's a lack of understanding. And with all of the stigma, families end up keeping these loved ones at home, keeping these loved ones away from mm-hmm. society in general. So society doesn't get that opportunity to learn. And the only way they learn is when they see the stereotypes that might come out in a movie. And so mm-hmm. I think as a result, of, of Colvis and I ensuring that we took our son out and got him involved, you know, took him to church and took him to family gatherings and so on. The ones that we were invited to, that was a struggle early on in the years as well. People are now making an effort to learn. They are reading articles. They are watching documentaries. Uh, Colvis's mom, my mother-in-law, she shares with us conversations that she has with people at random. At the grocery store, she'll see a child who demonstrates similar uh, behavior years as her grandson and she'll walk up to them and engage in a conversation there is no way Mm. she would have done that you know years ago without you know Mm -hmm. before her grandson and and before us pushing her to understand and embrace everything about her grandson
1: and sharon just building off of that like what are some of the cultural pieces and conversations that you would have wanted to have had more support with navigating years ago when you were going to those different parent support groups?
0: Oh, things, I mean, we talked so much about our faith group, for one. And, you know, there was a time, unfortunately, where we actually stopped going to church because our son's behavior was quite a challenge. And some of the congregants uh, just couldn't understand. And we just didn't feel comfortable attending. And so, we stopped going for a while and that's something that in our Salbona parent meetings many others of different faith backgrounds they've experienced and we mm-hmm. talk to each other okay so how did you help your congregation understand how did you speak to the different faith leaders in your place of worship how did you manage to include your child at school we talk a lot about streaming and so mm-hmm. often when we talk in the education about streaming we talk about the typical children who you know we, we, you know their big discussion now is about streaming at the high school level. I think now it's college courses and university courses and locally developed courses. Well, streaming also takes place in the special education stream as well, because you can have a child who has a certain diagnosis, but they may be streamed into a, a M.I.D. class versus a developmentally disabled class versus an autism communications class. And there's different expectations in those different classes. But unfortunately, a lot of the data does show that Black children typically developing as well as those with special education needs seem to be streamed into the lower levels so again mm-hmm. how do you argue that what are the tools that you need what is the information that you need to arm yourselves when you're sitting at those tables across the table from all you know these education professionals and they have all of the language and all of the lingo and all of the background how do you as a parent go up and stand up against that well when i would attend mm-hmm. these meetings a lot of the, the the parents that I'm working with they didn't understand the racial piece the Racialized peace adds on a whole other layer because, unfortunately, so for so long, black people have felt on the outside of education. Black people have been, unfortunately, uh, streamed and experienced higher levels of, of punitive measures through the education system.
1: Uh, just building on that, like this is going to be a very obvious fact, but not only is your son black, but he's a man, and he's huge. Um... Okay. so i i am um another obviously but i i'm a white woman but many of my friends who are also white women are married to black men and many of them have a very similar story the first time that their husband explained to them police interactions um mm-hmm. and they'll talk about like we were driving down the highway we saw a cop car i've never seen him like i've never seen him pull out his wallet so quickly just being prepared for what may or may not happen there so Uh, And especially given that your group started in 2020 with all the conversations that were happening at that time, I'm just curious, how does raising a black disabled man influence decisions you've had to make as a family?
2: Well, this was certainly before 2020 and George Floyd. I mean, it's a constant concern because one, Isaiah doesn't articulate himself well. Just as a simple example, when we go to the store, here you are, two black men (laughs) and Isaiah, our son, he he likes beads and some beads are very expensive but he'll go into jewelry stores and he'll just go and touch the beads Mm -hmm. and rub them because it's a sensory thing it's kind of random so you see these two black guys going into the expensive jewelry section and touching the beads and you know i'm hyper vigilant because you know you get the store people who come and they walk and they look at you and look i'm a black man myself and so i i'm used to the stairs but then you know there are now two of us and my son is tall i'm six one he He's 6'4 and he's 240. So we just look very suspicious. And so while we've not had any police being called on us, we've certainly felt the gazes and the hyper surveillance that comes with us. And so our concern always is that should a situation happen where he's not able to articulate himself and we're not there, how will that look? Will there be a time where he's accused or and he can't explain himself and people think he's mentally ill? And you know, and, and we've seen some challenges in our society with police and the mentally ill. And so we don't want to be in that situation. So we say to his workers, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to just be there for him, not, not to restrict his freedom. As Sharon shared, one of the decisions we made early on is we're not going to coop him up in the house, but we want him to be in community because that's where you learn and that's where society learns. But we also recognize that there are some stereotypes that happen. And we need to do our best to make sure that the, those who are supporting him and being a voice for him, um, an advocate in the community that he supported because he may not understand. Uh, and, and we've had to do our work around helping him not be a shoplifter mm. because in his mind, you know, I want something. <laughs> and dad says, no, he's put things in his pocket. <laughs> and so we have to be super, super vigilant when we see those things to say, no, that goes back. You put that back. Because I know we're being watched on camera. But but he doesn't understand that and and if we're not there and his workers don't fully understand that and he gets frisked and arrested and people don't really get it and and if he resists because he's big and somebody beats him, like you know we go really really extreme because there's fear mm-hmm. of, of this stuff in society again we've been blessed because we haven't had to deal with the court system but we're very conscious I'm very conscious as a black man how my son is viewed because he doesn't look like he's got a, a disability, and and so we have got to be a voice and an advocate and for him.
0: The unfortunate piece is, you know, and the reality is that when it's a black man, sometimes it's punished first or apprehend first and ask questions later. And there's just too many stories of black men, not just across the border. I mean, it's it's not just an American phenomenon where Black men have been. There's more aggression. There's more physicality mm. used in dealing with a black man before even finding out if there's any mental illness, if there's any hidden disability or anything like that. We've got two sons, so we have an older, typical son who's very street smart. He too was also a very hyper vigilant big brother, mm. and we made a pact as a family. And I don't know if other non racialized families, if other white families, have ever had to do this, but we made a pact as a family that was whatever we're dealing with, with our son, we will not call the police because we just can't trust that if he's in crisis and we're in crisis, when those police officers who were supposed to serve and protect, and again, it's not all of them. I'm not talking about all of the the, the police officers that exist. We know this, but who knows who's going to show up at my door and then something happens negative and apology is not going to bring my son back.
1: And you both talked about how, for a variety of reasons, some people may have lower expectations of what your son is able to accomplish. But Clovis, you've also been quite public about the fact that as a father and then also as a black father, uh, you felt sometimes this social expectation that you wouldn't be as involved in your son's care or as, as just as a regular like parent. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you say because I know many black dads and they are great dads, right? Like they're actively involved mm-hmm. in their children's lives. But I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what your experience has been like as a dad and why you think it's so important that we change this narrative around what we expect from fathers.
2: When you you, you look at some of the the data that uh, there is just a high, uh, I mean, reality is there, there's just a high percentage of black kids growing up in single parent households. And so there is this narrative that black fathers really are not fathers. They, they, they're they not engaged. There is no expectation for me to be involved. And so when, when I'm going to the, the medical appointments and just with our schedules, Sharon being in the school system and not a lot of flexibility, my job has allowed me a lot more flexibility. So I took him to his medical appointments and I took him to, you know, the hospital visits and all of these kinds of things. And, and so sometimes people didn't even know that Sharon was around because I tend, to be doing those things she did the school stuff but I did a lot of the the medical stuff and so people thought like wow you were You're an amazing father. (laughs) And it's like, what, really? I'm doing it not because I'm so awesome. I'm doing it because schedule-wise, it made sense. But there is this sense that dads aren't supposed to be that involved. So we need to change that narrative in in, in a big way. Getting the word out there that fathers do exist. Fathers do care. Fathers are doing just as much as as mothers Mm -hmm. are. And and sure, we we could do um, a better job of making sure that there are fewer single-parent families. But it doesn't mean that the, the dads don't care or not involved and you know we're we're at the hockey rinks we're at the soccer rinks we're in the medical appointments they go to the school visit yeah yeah, I think that the narrative needs to be be changed
1: I know for me it's interesting as like an adult child who's disabled and this this is embarrassing because I've had my disability since birth but it probably took me until my late teens early 20s to realize that oh like it wasn't just my mom who was doing a bunch of things to make sure that I had access to the same things as my other siblings like my dad also had a big role to play in this and I like and to be honest like he at times was probably the first one to sit me down and have very frank conversations about you know like it'll be harder for you to get a job and that's not your fault but that's just a reality that you need to be prepared for yeah it's just really fascinating that like even as somebody who's living with a disability it took me a lot longer to appreciate my dad's role And helping me learn to live with it than it did for me to realize, like, oh, my mom was a big part of this.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's almost like the way it's set up that dads aren't necessarily invited. I mean, even in our group, we're trying to expand to to encourage more dads to be involved. Men do things in different ways. You know, they're, they're not necessarily ones to sit around the table and, and share their feelings and, and emotions, <laughs> but they're more ones who are more active. And um, that's why I said, you know, in ho- Isaiah's hockey program, it's the dads <laughs> and, then, you know, in the sports stuff, because that's just often how men, men think. But when you talk about support groups, and uh, hey, I, I fit into that category. Early on, I didn't go to support groups because I, I knew that I was going to be one of the few guys, so I'm not going to go. <laughs> and then I'm sure many guys are in that same boat. They might be supportive, but it's like I'm not going to go into a room where I'm the only guy talking. And and so it's almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that we want men involved but we don't create the spaces Mm -hmm. where men are actually feeling welcome to be involved so
1: quickly like what do you think are some of the things we can do socially and culturally to help better include men in conversations about parenting children particularly children with disabilities Um, well you know what? it may be
2: more specific spaces and and these are things that that I'm I'm looking at how do we we do that differently because um, men may not be open necessarily to coming and talking about Their feelings. But you do that in a place where maybe it's just men, maybe it is a different kind of gathering, and you don't call it a support group. Mm -hmm. You know, these are things that we have to think about. Uh, We need to cater based on relevance, right? How men interact with, with each other. And it's not to say that we don't need support groups because, you know, I know Family Services had some groups that, that I participated in for the past few years prior to the COVID. Uh, we were a meeting once a year just to hang out at a camp and almost two dozen of us go to London and, and just spend the weekend together. So the men are there, but we just have to do it in different ways that are more engaging of how men think.
1: When listeners are hearing this podcast, it's going to be the day after Valentine's Day. So I feel like I can't have a married couple on a show close to Valentine's Day without, I don't know, somehow addressing this. I know that there is a thought out there that disabled children, that when we come, um, we enter the family, we put this incredible burden on a marriage and the marriage may not survive. So I'm just curious for the two of you, like, are there any ways that you think it's actually strengthened your marriage? Marriage, to go through the experience of disability together
2: well adversity has two children right one would be strengthening or one could be weakening any kind of adversity exposes weakness but then you have a decision to make how do you respond when you see those weaknesses and so for us we have a faith that grounds us you know because sometimes the marriage commitment is not as strong as it needs to be I mean for, for me for us it, it, it's certainly strong and it was a commitment we made but in in addition, we also have a, a faith that helps strengthen that bond, It, especially early on when we, we were the first in our family to have a child with special <laughs> needs and, and the blaming that we were experiencing from friends and family and all the advice and, you know, it felt like which way do we go? And, and it was tough on the marriage, you know, young kids and new careers and no money and no future. What is the future gonna look like? And, and then the examples that we saw out there where families split, it almost became like, is that the route that we want to go? Mm. But to answer your question, um, like I said, you have decisions to make. And we, we said, no, that, that's not that's not going to help our situation to split because our kids need us. And just because the struggle is there doesn't mean it'll always be there, number one. But number two, um, it'll worsen the situation for our kids. And so we, we need each other to get through this and uh, to push through. And then uh, the last thing I would add is getting help. We we're blessed to have a great circle of friends. Um, we were blessed to have a, a support system in our church that gave us time away, people who could take care of our kid, you know, and and give us respite. All of that was very helpful because it allowed us to recharge and to make sure that that our marriage is strong. And so, hey, it's 31 years. Uh, I know for a young guy like myself and my wife, how do 31, that sounds like we were childhood brides and grooms. It has been an incredible journey, you know, as we we look back over the last number of years with, with our son. But if we had not kept the faith and kept going, we would not be able to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. It would be a different conversation. And we'd probably not have the group because it would have been, um, it's a shared journey that we decided that we were at the point where we were able to do this. And while it has been Sharon's goal and vision from the the get-go, having a partner to support, and I've been there to support her along this journey, has made it easier to realize that goal um, and that dream. And so, yeah, the struggle is there you're going to struggle as a married couple without kids you're going to struggle as a married couple with kids and you're going to struggle as a married couple with kids with a disability so like if we're looking for a soft and easy life then it's not going to exist you just have to have the mindset that when you see those fissures those holes in your relationship fill them don't run away from them
0: well said well said clove and i guess the last little piece is you know you're there to lift each other up as clove said oh know, we've had our times. So anyone listening to this, we have had our times. And there's been times where I was ready to give up, I was ready to give in, not necessarily on the marriage, but it just there's days and moments where it's just too much. And Clovis was there to lift me up. He was there to encourage me to support me. And there were times where Clovis was done, he was tired, he was exhausted, he was checked out. And again, that's where okay, I'm going to be the strong one. now. Maybe I'm the mm-hmm. one you you know for those of you out there who are people of faith I was the one who was on my knees I was the one that was maybe you know going to some of his guy friends and saying hey can you reach out to him can you give him a call can you and him go out and, and grab a drink or grab some wings or call his brothers wherever the case may be so that's the commitment that you make as a unit marriage vows or life vows till death do you part you know really hold those vows to be true and when you look at your child it's the same thing that was Clovis's my philosophy is we looked at each other till death do we part we looked at our children till death do we part or like our older boy you get married and you leave home we're Mm -hmm. in it until the end there's the ups there's the downs and you lean back you pull them up and here we are today still struggling still fighting the good fight but we know that we're going to have each other's backs
1: that's great. If there's any parents listening to this who they've just found out that their child has a diagnosis, what would you want them to hear?
2: Some of the same thing. Do not give up. This is not the time to shrink back. You need to work together. You you need to, uh, and Sharon said it well, have each other's back because there will be days where one partner is stronger than the other and you need each other. And think about the future. You're stronger when you go through adversity. Running away is not going to help your child. If you want the best for the child, you need to do this together. You know, if you've got multiple kids, one of the things that I would say is you've got to make sure that you don't sacrifice one for the other. That, that you, both your kids or all three of your kids, whatever number of kids you have, they need you in different ways. And, and you've got to have those open, honest conversations. Give them both opportunities for a good life. And I think too often, the child with the diagnosis becomes now the target. And all of the energy goes into that child Mm -hmm. and so the marriage struggles and the other kids struggle that's not fair and that's not fair to the the child with special needs because they need their siblings Mm -hmm. when they get older Mm -hmm. and so if you as a parent hyper focus on them at the ignorance of your marriage and your other kids it's actually going to be detrimental to the family so don't let that new diagnosis become your new god because it's actually going to destroy your family very slowly or very quickly in some instances
0: very honestly it's not going to be easy that's the honest truth it's not an easy road it's a rocky bumpy road that you're on at many times it's going to feel like an uphill battle why do I say all that because as as our older boy would say you gotta hug it you gotta hug it you gotta (laughs) lean into it it's not going to be easy but it does get easier also speaking to those who are in a single parent situation so couples as well as those who are single parents doing this on your own get help start to create your circle and as you create your circle of support that should overflow into a circle of support for your child or children with disabilities find support groups That speak to you. There are resources out there for you. Find them and lean into them. Even if you can only attend a meeting once a month or once a quarter, at least when you attend, I know for me, it was always such a breath of fresh air when I would walk into those meetings and hear people share their story. And you're saying to yourself, Oh my gosh, were they at my house yesterday? Or were (laughs) they with my family on the weekend? Like you just articulated my entire day and everything that I'm feeling. That's the beauty of connection
1: as we move into the end of the show first where can people go to find out more information about what you're up to
2: we have a website SabonaACS, acs so that's s-a-w-u-b-o-n-a-a-c-s dot org we also have a twitter handle at Bona ACS.
1: So I just want to end this up by asking the same questions that uh, we ask everyone who comes on this show. The show is called Connecting Disability. I'm just wondering for the two of you, in what ways has your experience of raising a child with a disability made it hard for you to connect sometimes with those around you?
0: I, I guess, a sp- well, no, I'm not just in the beginning. Even now, it's a different road that we're on. It's similar because, again, every mm-hmm. family has their struggles. Whether a child is, is typically developing or not, it can be isolating because your time needs to be spent differently. As Clovis was saying, you know, his weekends are often spent taking our son to his sports activities. So our weekends, you know, are, are spent differently. In the beginning, a lot of time reading and learning and understanding autism and attending the support groups, not being included in things because our son did have behavior, you know, and struggles and stuff like that, not necessarily being included in certain things or choosing not to be included. There was times where we were invited and we chose not to attend. So not to necessarily always point the finger outwards. It can be isolating and it can be hard to connect. And then sometimes you don't feel like connecting because you feel like maybe you'll be a burden. You'll feel like maybe you're not really wanted. You're feeling like maybe people are only inviting you because they feel pity for you. Those are the things sometimes you have to overcome and trust people's integrity, trust people's heart and their love and care for you or know that things are going to happen for a time and happen in stages. So there's times throughout our son's life where we felt more isolated than at other times.
2: Yeah, and I don't have a whole lot more to add. Time is a big one. You know, when, when you're at this stage of life, often people can just pick up and go away for a weekend, you can hang out with friends and and somebody calls you up and you can be spontaneous. We can't be spontaneous because it's like, what are we going to do with Isaiah? Especially now that his brother has moved out, it's now we can't be as flexible and and just do whatever we want. You know, as a middle-aged person, a lot of people have kids who are independent. Well, our our son constantly needs uh, support. So that makes it difficult to connect.
1: So given that, what has good connection? looked like for you.
2: I find uh, that it's been helpful having a good friend of mine has a child with muscular dystrophy and good connection is I don't have to explain. Good connection is with the families that we're supporting. Um, You, you say, I'm tired. People don't question you and think like, why, why are you tired? Are you not getting enough sleep? They know that you have a child with disability. That's connecting. You don't have to say anything more when you say you're tired or you're whatever emotions. You're feeling great because dot 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 people understand and they get it as opposed to having to defend and explain and then you just don't bother and you don't want to be around those people so when you feel like there is a mutual understanding without sometimes the words or just one word can fill in the gap that's connecting
0: we've tried to have different relationships because you know as Clovis has shared and I have a few buddies as well who also have children with disabilities and yeah when I get with them, and it's not often, but you know, maybe that once or twice a year, we try to do that lunch over the summer, or we try and do, you know, I went to the movies with a, a friend over the winter break. There's a certain connection there. But then I do also have friends who don't have any, you know, a child with any type of challenge. And then that's a different kind of connection. So again, it's, I guess, you know, mm. different different friends and in, in different seasons for different reasons. But again, as Clovis says, when you get together, it's like you pick up where you left off. There's no judgment, there's that joy, there's that understanding or that attempt to understand exactly where you're coming from. And it's it's a mutually refreshing relationship. You both you know, really get out of it what you both put into it. So even though with some of our relationships, because of our differing schedules, we may only get together two or three times a year. When we do, it's like we saw each other the day before. And that's that's the real joy in connecting.
1: Well, thank you so much for the work that you've done in the past few years, and I know I've learned a lot from your family story. And I'm really excited to see where where this goes from here. Thank
0: you. It's it's uh, yeah. Thank, thank you me. for being interested in our story, and uh, we do hope that it can inspire and encourage others who are along a same journey.
1: Connecting Disability is a production of AMI Audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Nizreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to our guests, Sharon and Clovis Grant, and special personal thanks to all my friends who have shared their stories of their multicultural relationships with me. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll connect next time.